You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist and a writer. His first book was Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlives. With Richard Saitoic, MD, he wrote Wednesday is Indigo Blue, Discovering the Brain of Synesthesia. His newest book is Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain. Thank you for joining me, David. Thanks for having me. David, this is a, a fascinating <laughs> book. And, and what I like about it is I think when I look at this in some, I think that you are in many ways a science fiction writer who uses the sci- the toolkit of science fiction to tell uh, stories of nonfiction. Oh, that's interesting. I, um, well, with this latest book, Incognito, it's a straightforward nonfiction book, but tell me why you thought, uh, what are the tools of science fiction? Well, you use a lot of, uh, of metaphors and similes to explain, uh, tell us stories about the brain and how it works in much the same way that a science fiction writer does, that you um, will say, this is like this, the brain is like this, and these are tools straight out of the science fiction toolkit and, and that are used to create a sense of wonder, and you certainly create a sense of wonder with this book. Oh, great. Thanks. Well, it's actually an easy job to do that about the brain because, uh, you know, it's the most complicated thing we've ever found in the universe. And so, yeah, it is the case that I use the tools of narrative to try to make thing, make sure that things are cast in stories, that stories have an arc, that I use metaphor and analogy. But these are all ways of just sort of making sure that people stay engaged instead of it being a, a dry tome, that they're engaged with, you know, the modern view of neuroscience, which is really quite stunning and humbling, and it's almost a numinous experience as far as I'm concerned. Well, you're good at numinous experiences. I'd say some is a perfect example of this, and some is in many ways, too, a, 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 science fic- a work of science fiction. But again, you kind of uh, approach it using you approach nonfiction using the tools of science fiction and and I really like this as a storytelling technique and a way of conveying your ideas about the brain and you really change our perception of who ourselves were and uh, I beginning with uh, your Galilean uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. metaphor and that's a really a great way of uh, explaining that to us so so talk a little bit about who we are and how much of who we are we know. Well, um, so for the listeners, I'll explain what the Galileo bit was. It's the, you know, in 1610, he realized, he, he got the clinching evidence. He saw the moons of Jupiter in his telescope, and that was the piece of evidence needed that we are not the ones at the center of the universe, but instead that um, there were things orbiting around one another, and in fact, we were orbiting around the sun, and then, you know, eventually, very quickly over the next 400 years, people realized our sun is just one star in the Milky Way, and it's way out on a distant edge. And so religious critics decried this as a dethronement of man from his position at the center of things. And what happened over the next 400 years was that we kept figuring out that we're not actually at the center of things. And uh, what's happening in brain science is that it's very clear we're not at the center of ourselves. The conscious part of the brain is the smallest bit of what's happening. 
and the brain has massive operations that it's running under the hood, and uh, we're not really the ones driving driving the boat of this huge operation. Um, originally, the title of the book was going to be Dethronement for this reason, but um, but I changed it because some people have a view that dethronement sounds sort of depressing. Um, and so I spent the last chapter talking about the upside of dethronement. In the case of Galileo, we realized that the universe was much more wondrous and magnificent than we could have ever suspected back when we thought we were at the center and everything was going around us. We now know there are as many um, galaxies outside of our own as there are stars inside of our own galaxy, 100 billion. And, you know, there's an uncountable number of extraterrestrial civilizations presumably out there. There's so much to discover. And that's exactly the same as what's going on with inner space. We are looking in at this very mysterious alien kind of computational fabric that's in our heads. Somehow it's equivalent to us. And yet we're just starting to sail into this inner cosmos and discover weird alien life forms and figure out that it's much more wondrous and magnificent than we would have ever guessed. And one of the things that that interests me is I was recently talking uh, to um, someone who had uh, written a book about extraterrestrial life. And one of the things that he pointed out is that we don't know what life is. We don't really have a good definition of life. And I think in much the same way that we don't have a good definition of life, we really don't quite have a good definition of us, do we? (laughs) That's an interesting point. That's right. I mean, what we consider us, what, what you consider you... And I, I is the conscious part, essentially. So the part that flickers to life when you wake up in the morning is typically what you think of as you. And the, the hundred million neurons that you have that control your gut and the peristalsis in your gut, you probably don't think of that as you very much. And, um, you know, all your brainstem nuclei that control your respiration and your heartbeat and so on, you are absolutely dependent on those massive operations. But you probably don't really think about that as you very often. And, and in fact, this comes out in language where people will always say things like, oh, well, you know, my brain made me do it or I had a brain freeze or whatever. And it's like they separate themselves off from the operations of their brain. Or, for example, when I have dreams and there's some weird plot or dialogue in it, I always feel like, gosh, who exactly, where did that come from, that weird, that funny joke or that weird situation? Because on the one hand, it is my brain. Right? Somehow I know it's my brain serving up, but it doesn't feel like the me part of my brain. It feels like something else. So, so what we consider us is really that smallest bit of what's going on, just the part sort of riding on top that, that we call consciousness. It, it reminded me of a surfer on the ocean, that we're the surfer on the surfboard who thinks that they're the entire ocean. And yeah. The- yeah, that, that's right. That's exactly right. Now, one of the things I think that's really uh, well done is you start out by taking us through the senses and, and helping us understand how the senses work. And what we understand is that we don't understand, in general, our senses and how they work, do we? Well, actually, from a neuroscience point of view, we do understand them pretty well. The part that's so surprising is that from the inside, you know, most humans will live and die their whole lives without realizing how much of an illusion is being served up by their senses. Um, So, for example, you know, if you look at somebody's eyes moving around when they're looking around a room, it looks like a camera held by a drunken cameraman, right? And if you actually videotaped (laughs) that way, the, the scene would be totally shaky, right? But our 
scene out there isn't shaky, even though our eyes are darting all around. And the reason is, all we're actually seeing is an internal model of the world. Remember that your brain is actually locked in darkness inside the vault of the skull. And all you're seeing is, is I mean, all the brain ever experiences are electrical signals coming in. And it constructs all this. And the reason that the scene doesn't look shaky is because all you're doing is updating your model when you move your eyes around. You're not actually like a video camera. And in fact, you don't even need your eyes to see at all because when you dream at nighttime, you're having full, rich visual experience and, uh, and your eyes are closed. So what does that mean? It means that seeing is about the brain. And so from a neuroscience point of view, we understand senses pretty well, but this is not public. I mean, this is not popularly known that uh, the senses operate like this. Most people assume that the eyes are like cameras and the ears are like microphones and so on, but it's not actually the case. Now, one of the th ways you uh, convey this to us is by looking at illusions, and I think that's a really great way to um, demonstrate to us uh, how, how the limits of our of our actual physical vision and how, how much of that data input gets in. And that's what interests me, too, is that this is just a stream of data, and it doesn't. And as you say, it doesn't matter where the data comes from. There's uh, adaptations of somebody who had little pinchers on his back. Oh well, that's right. I think you're referring to the the plasticity experiments. Yeah, is that what you're referring? Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, well, that's right. You can feed the data in in different ways. So um, you can, for example, take uh, a video camera and set it up so that its video input is getting translated to a series of touches on somebody's back, little little plungers that move in and out on somebody's back. And um, yeah, and you can, you can come to perceive the world through those signals coming in through your back instead of through your eyes. And it's like vision. And even though that sounds crazy, it's because all the brain ever sees is electrical signals, as I mentioned. And whether that's getting turn into electrical signals by your eyes or your ears or your back or your tongue or your nose or your fingertips, it doesn't matter. To the brain, it's all just electrical signals, and it will figure out how to put an interpretation on those. Now, we've always, have, we've always suspected that there's more to us than just the conscious us, haven't we? Actually, no. It's, uh, a, it's an extraordinarily <laughs> recent idea. Um, St. Augustine... Uh, you know, originally made a model of man where where um, he wanted to show that man does everything rationally. And the only place he ran into a problem was he noticed that sometimes people would do something like suddenly laugh or hiccup or, you know, scratch themselves suddenly. And he realized that there he put this in sort of this category of exceptions to people acting rationally. But, but that was the first time anyone even said anything that smacked of the unconscious. And it wasn't, and that idea was sort of forgotten till Leibniz, and then it was forgotten for another several hundred years. And, and what happened is it was a very slow progression, and the f when it finally really started to blossom was with Sigmund Freud. And, of course, his famous metaphor was the, the iceberg, and the conscious part is just the tip of the iceberg, and the rest is, is hidden there. Um, and, you know, Freud had some things right and some things wrong, uh, and, of course, he lived before the blossoming of modern neuroscience. But that part about the unconscious brain, he really had right. And, you know, his ideas about how you could tap into it and so on, those have mostly fallen out of favor. But the idea that there's a lot happening under the surface was spot-on correct. And it's sort of surprising that in historical time, um, it, it was only uh, an extremely recent um, observation. 
Now, there have been lots of really interesting uh, experiments to, to demonstrate this um, with uh, uh, lag times between seeing something and, and uh, motion. So talk about some of those experiments, the way we kind of teased out the fact that there's something happening that we can't, uh, that we don't know what it is, do we, Mr. Jones? <laughs> um, I, uh, well, what I suggest in the book is that one of the, you know, what happened was there was no sort of centralized effort to demonstrate the existence of the unconscious, but I sort of went back into history and pulled out little threads of things that to me seemed like the first rumblings where people thought, gosh, something's happening here. And essentially what happened was, you know, in the same way that we use the computer metaphor for everything now, 120 years ago, everyone was using the machine metaphor because, you know, it was the Industrial Revolution. Everyone was very impressed by machines. And so that was the metaphor for everything. And so everything about the body and biology was seen as a machine. But the one thing that wasn't was thinking. Thinking was seen as something separate and special. And uh, the experiment that you just referred to was um, something I found in the 1800s by a, an American named Cattell who was working in Germany. And uh, he just was testing people's reaction time. So let's say if you, if you flash a light and have, you know, let's say I flash a light at you and you hit the button as fast as you can. That'll take you about 180 milliseconds. Um, if I ask you to, um, you know, let's say I, hit the, I show you a red light and you have to hit the, the left button, or I show you a green light and you have to hit the right button, so you're having to make a decision, now it takes you about 220 milliseconds to respond. If, in, if, I, if I flash a picture at you and say, okay, name the thing, was it a horse or whatever, then, then it takes you even longer. And so Cattell measured reaction time, which is something that essentially nobody on the planet was very interested in his research. But, but he realized, wait a minute, what is this gap in time be between, you know, the, the light hitting you and you actually responding? And he said, maybe thinking is also like a machine process because as I change the question that I'm asking and I cause more, you know, computation to happen. He didn't use the word computation. I don't, I don't remember what word he used there. But, you know, as, as more is required, it takes a longer time. So maybe thinking time is just like machine time. And that indicates that there's stuff happening under the surface that you're not even aware of. And so I think this was one of the things that, you know, added up with other bits of things in literature that made people think, gosh, maybe there's a lot happening under the surface that we don't even get to hear about. You know, it interested me, too, that uh, the psychological insight power of the James family... William James was a really powerful man who, who, who understood a lot, as did his brother, Henry James. Henry James was, expressed his intel understanding in great literature. William James proved to be a great psychologist, and a lot of his stuff still seems very applicable. Oh, yeah. James is sort of the godfather of the field. Uh, William James, that is. And, and it's still the case that many neuroscience talks will start with a slide with uh, some William James quote. I mean... Probably 10% of the neuroscience talks I see start with the James because <laughs> he was just so pressing. He just saw things so clearly. And, you know, much of what he said was spot on. Now, uh, I'd like you to talk about, you know, the, the understanding of the, of the brain in terms of, uh, as Walt Whitman put it, we, I contain multitudes. Because this is, uh, I think, a key to, to our more modern understanding of the brain as to how things work. Well, right. So that's the framework that I propose in this book. Um, and I call it the Team of Rivals framework. 
um, <laughs> is that the only way to understand what's happening in the brain is that we have to give up this illusion that, that we are one thing. Um, each person is made up of a lot of competing networks in the brain that are all somewhat independent and they battle it out. And uh, we can actually image this sort of thing. You give people some sort of decision-making, some sort of moral conundrum. And what you see are different networks in the brain become active and essentially they have to fight it out. And as a result, what's happening under the hood there is like a neural parliament where you have um, competing political parties that are all battling it out to control the ship of state and steer uh, where the organism ends up going. Now, tell us about this concept of the, the Umwelt, which I think is that, that little part of us that actually is us. Well, the Umwelt is slightly different. It's, uh, the Umwelt is the part of the world that you can tap into, that you can see. Mm -hmm. So for us, we see a very tiny slice of the electromagnetic radiation spectrum. And, and we, um, you know, we can see that part, but we can't see, let's say, radio waves or, or gamma rays or cell phone signals, all of which are passing through our body. Um, and they're invisible to us because we don't have biological receptors for it. And so we don't realize the other stuff is out there. Um, if you were a tick, then your umwelt would consist of butyric acid and warmth. And if you were a, the ghost fish, then your umwelt would consist of electrical fields and perturbations in those fields. And so all animals pick up on different energy sources in the world. And presumably, all animals assume that to be reality out there, even though it's only a very tiny slice of reality. Now, one of the things I think that's uh, interesting in your book is that you talk about the importance of the stories we tell ourselves and storytelling. And, and I think that that's, I think, prime a part of how we construct our identity. We are, are a narrative process, and that's why stories are so appealing to us. Yeah, boy, that's right. I mean, one thing the brain is really good at is confabulation. So <laughs> it cares... And this is different, by the way, from lying or, or making something up. I mean, the brain is really good at coming to a single story about what's just happened. I think it's one of the great pressures on the brain to do that. It's one of the benefits of our evolution. So, for example, um, you, know, you know what a wireframe cube looks like if you just use, uh, what is that, 12 lines to draw a cube on a piece of paper. Um, you can, you can see it as though the cube is coming out of the page one way or the other way, right? You can actually think that the front face of the cube is one or the other, and it can switch back and forth, right? You've seen this sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, the key is that the brain isn't seeing both ways at once. It just it picks one and sticks with it, and then it might switch over and pick a different one and stick with it. But the important point is that brains are really good at coming down on a single story. And it does that, it's the exact same thing in the, um, in the cognitive domain. Even though it's got multiple competing interpretations of whatever, it ends up uh, choosing the best story and sticking with it. Now, you kind of have a two-party system for the brain, don't you? You like... No, no. No? Uh, no, actually, there's multiple parties, and the parties go smaller and smaller, just like divisions within parties. Um, I mean, one can point to sort of a big overarching uh, issue, which is, let's say we might crudely summarize it as reason versus emotion. And the reason I'm willing to, to summarize it that way is just because that, that has such a historical path to it. Um, and it's useful because we all sort of get it. But, but the point is that, you know, parts of your brain care about 
let's say, the internal world and parts of your brain care about the external world and things like, you know, math problems and so on. Um, and these are always battling it out. So if I give you a, if I, you know, confront you with a decision in which you need to decide whether you're going to eat the chocolate chip cookie or not, um, part of your brain wants to eat it and part of your brain doesn't want to eat it because uh, the part of your brain that wants to eat it is interested in, you know, impulse gratification and getting the sugar high and so on. And the part of your brain that doesn't want to eat it worries about long-term decision-making and and so on. So in that sense, you can think about it as a two-party system, but it actually grows much more complex than that. And that's actually just the first way in to think about the team of rivals. And what you get all the way at the lowest levels is that Mother Nature invents multiple ways to solve all sorts of problems, even things like motion detection. You know, it's really important to detect when something's moving in the outside world. And appears um, now that Mother Nature's probably invented three or four different ways of accomplishing that in the brain. And what I argue is that this is actually a really important thing for her to do because she ends up chronically reinventing solutions to problems. And so she gets all these overlapping solutions. And I argue in the book that this is actually the, the key to unsticking artificial intelligence, which is essentially a stuck field. I think we have to copy what Mother Nature does, and we have to come up with multiple overlapping solutions and let those networks battle it out. Well, that's what makes us uh, such a powerful species is that there are so many redundant pathways so that when something is broken, often it's just amazing how much the brain can be scooped out, cut out, cut off, cut up, and people can still function. Yeah, that's right. And and the only thing I would add to that is it's not simply redundant pathways. It's actually, it's sort of overlapping in, in this solution space. So... Um, so it's not merely that they're copies of each other, but they're actually different ways of solving the problem. I mean, take as an example in our uh, in our legislative system, we've got um, in our in our uh, Congress, let's say we've got Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians, and they're not redundant. They're actually different from one another. They have different ways of going about things. They all love their country, but they have different ways of of thinking about what the right thing to do is there. Now, um, one of the things. Uh that you talk about. And I think this is really interesting. You ask a lot of really interesting questions in, in this book that, that make it really, uh, are, that are thought-provoking. And one of the things you, you questions you ask is, um, that you ask yourself is, what is a secret? What is a neurobiological definition of a secret? And that's a really interesting question when you start to think about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what happened. I started thinking about it, and I realized that no one had ever proposed what a secret is and you know could could a computer hold a secret could a toaster hold a secret i mean those are also networked you know big complicated circuitry right so what is a secret exactly and i realized uh or at least what i propose is that uh, a secret is where you have in this team of rivals in the brain you have some parties that want to tell a story for whatever reason and other parties that don't want to because it would you know come at a social cost let's say and so a secret is where you've got this tension, this battle between different parties. And, um, and it turns out that holding secrets is quite bad for you. I, I stumbled on a literature that showed that people who hold in secrets end up having higher stress hormone levels and more doctor's visits and things like that. And people who journal these things and get them out tend to be healthier. And so... Um, yeah, I realized that the only way to even think about what is a secret 
is to think about this team of rivals analogy and look at um, look at how you ha- you're not one thing, but you're made up of different parts. You also tackle the thorny uh, nature of free will, and your <laughs> tell us how what your thoughts about free will, and, and I'll, I'll, I give you your own of your own free will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly what I think. Um, it turns out that uh, we it, it's difficult to conclude whether we do or do not have free will for certain. I mean, it's difficult to say. What I mean is the, this has been debated for 2,000 years, and what I know for certain is there's no killer experiment that proves it one way or the other. So we don't actually know. Most neuroscientists think we don't have free will because every part of the brain appears to be deterministic, meaning that every neuron is driven by other neurons, which are themselves driven by other neurons. And so everything's connected in a big network, and so it's not clear where you would get some other ghost in the machine to influence the activity of that network. It's not clear how you end up you know, sneaking something else in there. Uh, on the other hand, it may be that our science is simply too young to understand exactly how you sneak something in there. So I don't know whether we have free will or not, but here's what I can conclude in the book is that if we have free will, which we may, it is definitely much more constrained than people typically think. In other words, I cannot use my free will to make a decision that is very unlike who I am. Um, I can't use my free will to become a mass murderer because there's no possibility I could do that, nor could a mass murderer use his free will to act just like me. And and I know a lot of people have this idea that, okay, well, everybody's equal, all brains are equal, and that's a very charitable idea, but it's completely false. It's demonstrably wrong. And, uh, you know, the fact is that along any axis that we measure, brains are extremely different in their capacity for decision-making, their ability to simulate future consequences, their degree of empathy, their degree of aggression. I mean, brains are very different than one, from one another. And, and as a result, um, you know, you can't, I mean, most people are sort of in the middle. And so you could say, well, I could sort of use my free will. I could kind of act like Rick and you could act like me. But neither of us could act like Ted Bundy. And Ted Bundy couldn't act like us by just, you know, you making a free will decision. And so I think this is a very important uh, point for, you know, to realize that um, because of genes and environment in a very complicated interaction, uh, brains end up being very different from one another. And that has real ramifications and real opportunities, I think, for our legal system. You talk about the legal system and you get us into close into some clockwork orange territory. <laughs> to, I don't think it's clockwork orange at all. Well, no, it, it's not at all. I mean, what it's trying to do is come up with a tailored, customized legal system that's mm-hmm. more humane and more cost effective. And the idea is we look at the brain in front of the judge's bench and we say, essentially, we say, look, we don't know how you got here. Presumably, it's not your fault, but who cares? I mean, you got here because of a very complicated pathway of genes interacting with environment. And environment includes culture. It includes toxins in the air. It includes all of your experiences. Okay, all of that influences brain development. So the brain in front of the bench got here by some crazy path. All we need to do, all we need to do is understand what we do going forward from here. Mm-hmm. So all we need to do is say, okay, what's the best thing we can do to help you from here? So as it stands now, we throw everybody in jail as though incarceration is the one-size-fits-all solution. What has happened is our prison system has become our de facto mental health care system. 30% of the prisoners are mentally ill. Some other percentage, hard to estimate, are drug addicts who are in prison just because of that. This is, no, this, is, you know, this is not a useful way to go. We America now leads the world in the percentage of our population behind bars. 
right? More than any country in the world, we lock away a higher percentage of our population. Um, it's, it's inhumane. It's extremely costly. And so the idea is, can we take people and say, hey, you know what? We're going to set up mental health courts. We're going to set up juvenile courts. We're going to set up drug courts. We're going to try to deal with people's problems individually because we can afford to do it. It's much more cost effective than the alternative than putting people in prison where, you know, it's criminogenic, meaning people come back around to prison because you've broken their social circles. You've broken their employment opportunities. So um, it, it's much better for the long run if we say, oh, you know what? We might be able to help you with something. Uh, wherever we can. I mean, obviously, some people at the other end of the spectrum are, you know, rabid dogs, and we need to throw them in prison. I mean, we need to we need to get them off the streets and keep them off the streets. Some people are really dangerous, but not everybody is. It's a whole spectrum, right? And and the better biological understanding we can get of who's really dangerous and who's not as dangerous, all that means is that we can have a much more tailored system that's more humane and way more cost effective. Well, you talk about the biological nature of some criminal behavior uh the the gentleman uh, up in the up in the the tower was wondering what was what's the matter with me why am i having these thoughts right so charles whitman in 1966 went and uh and shot people from the university of texas in austin tower and uh right for a year before uh he did this he was keeping a diary he felt things changing inside of him uh, he was feeling himself dealing with these rages that he couldn't control um, he went to see a psychiatrist. It didn't do him any good, especially because this was 1966. And so in his suicide note, he said, when this is all over, I want an autopsy to be performed, which is exactly what happened. And it turns out that he had a brain tumor that was pressing against a part of his brain called the amygdala. And that's involved in fear and aggression. And so it's just one example of hundreds or thousands that we have where when the person's brain changes, their behavior changes. And the thing is, this doesn't forgive Whitman at all, but it does, I think it, it is a consciousness raiser for us to think about, okay, well, is it his fault that he got a brain tumor? I mean, is he, did he, was that an issue of free will that he got a brain tumor? Well, no. So um, people's behavior depends on their brains. Whitman is a sort of, you know, especially clear case that's very obvious, but you know, many criminals in the system have things that are wrong with their brains. Again, this doesn't forgive them. We don't get to say, oh, he had something wrong with your brain, so you get off. But it does mean we can say, all right, what can we do? Can we help you? Can we figure out some way of, you know, operating on your brain to remove the tumor, just like we would do for anybody in the healthcare system? Can we, you know, if you have, let's say, schizophrenia and you're deeply disconnected from reality, can we, can we help you? Um, these are the kind of things that a mental health court is quite good at. Uh, and drug courts, of course, are, are good at addressing the addicted brain rather than, rather than what we do with the war on drugs where we simply try to attack the supply, which will never work, right? Any, anytime you press the supply down, it pops up somewhere else. So the thing we have to do, of course, if we want to help people with drug problems is, you know, understand the brain of the addict and help them that way. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that you point out that we're sort of at a crossroads where our technological capabilities and our uh, understanding of the brain is having this intersection with the legal system. And, and I like that kind of diagram you have that shows us that, you know, we are really at a point where, at a, at a tipping point, where soon we will be able to just look at people's brains and say, okay, as you say, you've got a problem. Either we can help it or we can help you from not either we can just change your brain or we can perhaps you know 
we know that you're going to be prone to this kind of behavior. And you have a fascinating case of a man who all of a sudden uh, became a, a pedophile. That's right. It's similar to the Whitman case in that this man became a pedophile and it turned out it was because of a massive frontal lobe tumor, which once that was removed, his, his sexual behavior returned totally to normal. Um, you know, these, uh, again, it's just a consciousness raiser to show how often we see these cases where people's brains navigate their behavior. And sometimes it's in ways that don't fit with the rest of society. And then if it hadn't been discovered the night before sentencing that he had this brain tumor, he, you know, he'd just gone to jail for many years and presumably died pretty quickly of this brain tumor. But, um, yeah, by the way, one thing I want to clarify is when I talk about uh, what you just mentioned, one thing we can do is change people's brains. Um, I'm a libertarian, so I do not, I do not have any truck with the, the idea of the government changing people's brains. With the <laughs> exception, I mean, with the exception of, of helping people with medications mm -hmm. who are, for example, psychotic, um, you know, antipsychotics are quite useful. And uh, I deal with schizophrenic patients every day, and when they're on medications... Um, you know, they're connected with reality. And when they're not on medications, they are disconnected from reality um, in what can be extreme and terrifying ways. And so, you know, I think, I think our treatments for certain types of mental illness are very appropriate, but, but I'm for sure not in favor of a general statement about the government changing the brain. Um, I, I just want to clarify that. I think what we can do is modulate sentencing appropriately. So somebody mm -hmm. who's really dangerous, who's sentenced for longer, and somebody who is unlikely to transfer their behavior to a novel situation, we don't have to uh, sentence as harshly. And, and there's one other point that I just want to make because it's so important, which is that not all criminal brains have anything wrong with them. I mean, mm -hmm. for example, if you and I grew up in a really terrible neighborhood, we would be gang members and we'd probably be really good gang members or drug dealers, mm -hmm. right? Because it's totally rational behavior in that sort of circumstance. So it's not the case that you can look at any brain of someone who's broken the law and say, oh my gosh, you got something wrong with your brain. But that's not the important bit. The important bit is just understanding, okay, what can we measure about their brain and what can we, what can we gather about their future context? Um, you know, what situations they're going to find themselves in, how likely they are to do this sort of behavior again. And there are ways that we can help people socially by changing their social context. Now, uh, you have a, another book out that I wanted to talk about a little bit, Some, which I think is, is a, just such a wonderful uh, series of thought experiments. And I think you, you use those in this book, too, with, mm -hmm. with some thought experiments. And that is a really classic device of science fiction. And it, so talk about what inspired you to create Some. And explain what it is and, and tell us what inspired you to create it. Well, so some is a book of 40 short stories. It's literary fiction. And it's uh, all 40 stories take place in different possible afterlives. And, um, and all of them are mutually exclusive uh, afterlives. And, of course, they're all completely made up and sort of mischievously funny afterlives. They're not actual proposals about, about anything that happens after death because who the heck knows. And that's sort of the spirit behind the book is, as a scientist, what you really come to realize is, is how little we know. And I think that some, sometimes contrary to popular opinion, um, scientists are the most open-minded about this sort of thing, about, about really recognizing the limits of our knowledge and saying, okay, well, there's no point in pretending like we know what happens next because we've got zero data to weigh in on it. So, um, but, you know, when you look around, it doesn't take too much to realize that people are fighting and dying over their particular stories. There are 2,000 religions on the earth. 
And of course, they all, you know, accept their stories with some degree of certainty, at least many of the members of these religions. And so, you know, it's a little bit problematic. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got these very strict atheists who, who also pretend that they know what's going on. And they say, like, there's absolutely nothing going on that's bigger than us. And, uh, you know, and so the religious and the atheists get in fights where they're both essentially trying to tell each other what they can and can't believe in. And the fact is, neither of them know, right? It's a big, complicated universe. Um, we don't know what even reality is. I mean, the fact that you can go to sleep at night and be completely fooled into thinking a dream is reality, and then you wake up and you say, oh, that wasn't reality, this is reality. How do we even know this is reality, right? There's no, I mean, that's sufficient proof that we don't know what's going on. So um, given that, I do very much enjoy uh, exploring possibilities and being totally open to possibilities instead of instead of buying into this pretense that we actually know what's happening. And that that's the spirit behind some. Now, you you also collaborate on a book with uh, Richard Saitoic, and, and I remember reading uh, The Man Who Tasted Shapes when that came out. Um, uh, 89, you know, I think. 89, yeah. yeah I, I have a first edition sitting on my oh, shelf somewhere. Right. And, and it really changed the way I looked at you know, essentially, in the way, much a, a precursor to this book and changing the way you look at who you are. And I'm wondering if you read that book and if that influenced you in your choices of, of what you've studied and how you hooked up with him now. You know, uh, uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast, but I hadn't actually read that book. I knew who he was, though, because I got interested in synesthesia in about 2001. And uh, I went to a synesthesia conference to present some new discoveries I'd made. And I met him there, and we just really hit it off. We just really loved talking with each other and bouncing ideas around. And after enough correspondence, we decided we were going to write a book together. Because what I was doing, uh, starting in 2001 and, and continuing through, is um, you know, collecting what is now 20,000 synesthetes. Uh, you know, I've, most, almost all the literature on synesthesia has always been about a single synesthete. So now I've got 20,000 of them. I'm pulling the genes and I'm doing the neuroimaging. And as a result, what that means is, you know, the science is really getting to move forward. And, uh, and you know, Richard doesn't run a research lab, but he's, you know, he's sort of the father of synesthesia in the, in a se in the sense of putting it back on the map after sort of 80 years of scientific absence. So, so it was a terrific collaboration, um, kind of the, the old guard and the young Turk uh, putting together this thing. And I don't mean to call Richard old, but, you know, he was really the first guy out of the gate on that stuff. And so we had a terrific collaboration. Um, yeah. What got me interested in the brain and reality was I was I had just been reading books all through college about um, about the brain. Any magazine article I could get a hold of, any anything about the brain, I was voraciously reading. And all of that points to the same thing, which is, you know, how strange reality is. Now, you have a new book coming out called LiveWired. What's that about? So LiveWired is about how the brain reconfigures itself. It's about what we call brain plasticity. And the brain is constantly rewriting its own circuitry. And, uh, you know, we don't build machines like that. Our machines always have a fixed wiring diagram, and they do a particular function. And if you run over half the machine with your car, then it's not going to work anymore. But brains aren't like that. Brains are extremely malleable and flexible, and they work on principles that are totally alien to us right now. And so I'm writing this book to uh, what I did is I synthesized from all the giant literature on plasticity. I synthesized the eight principles of plasticity that I see. And, uh, and the last part of the book is an appeal to really move forward into building machines like this in the future. So you're interested. I know I talked with a bunch of people at the Singularity Conference about uh, artificial intelligence. And they had talked about 
how they spent so many years trying to develop an artificial Einstein and they never could do it. And then they realized, I think, not fairly recently, that they ought to try to just create an artificial toddler. And that turned out to be a lot harder than they anticipated. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, artificial intelligence, as far as as far as I'm concerned, is a stuck field. I mean, it's not, it's, it, you know, the smartest thing we have is the Roomba vacuum cleaner, which is a far <laughs> cry from, from the C-3PO's that I expected by 2011. And so, um, yeah, but I, you know, I, I have a proposal actually in Incognito and in Livewire to have very specific proposals about how to, how to remedy that situation. I mean, I can't guarantee they're right, but there certainly moves forward, and they might be right. You know, um, one of the things I think that is so interesting about this book, Incognito, is that you are using the brain to a describe the brain and address the brain. So you've got kind of a, a buy your bootstraps thing happening. And I wonder if you just talk about that process as a writer, realizing, well, I'm trying to do, I'm using this organ that I don't completely understand to describe how little I understand it. <laughs> I mean, I think the way out of that conundrum is that we actually study other people's brains, right? Mm -hmm. We study rat brains and, <laughs> and mouse brains and elephant brains and other people's brains. And so... Um, right, we're using all of our tools, but you know the fact is that the brain is so complicated that we can't even describe it in language anyway, in normal human language. So what we do is translate it into mathematics and computational simulations and so on. So, so the challenge is not really for me to wrap my mind around an entire human brain because that is completely impossible. It it exists at scales that are way beyond what we're capable of thinking of. You know, hundreds of billions of neurons all firing off electrical signals and secreting chemical signals and you know, all of this happening in parallel every single moment of your life all the time. I mean, there's no way you could actually understand a system of that complexity. But what we do is try to distill things down to their principles, which is what science always is about. And, um, you know, look, like people study how forests grow and how different trees with different shapes of, of leaves and trunks and so on, how these compete with each other for sunlight. And so what you can do is make pretty sophisticated models about how these competitions happen in the forest, you know, and then a big tree falls and these other trees, you know, move in for that sunlight and so on. But you can't actually know the whole forest. It's way too complicated. All you can know is the principles that make the forest the way it is. And I think that's, our, that's what we're doing with the brain. I've been speaking with David Eagleman. His new book is Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain. Thank you for joining me, David. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.